Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey, this is Aaron Carnes. We started this podcast in 2021 to promote my book, In Defense of Ska. Since then, the podcast has grown into its own thing. I've been working on an expanded second edition. I interviewed new people, edited every chapter, and there's a new final chapter, 30,000 new words. The expanded second edition of In Defense of Ska will be released on October 29th, 2024. Can you do something for me? Pre-order it right now at clashbooks.com under the books tab. The more copies it sells in advance, the more it'll get people to support Ska music. Thanks. Mustard Plug might have gotten huge if they would have pushed their ska punk cover of The Freshman by 90s alt-rock group The Verve Pipe. It was gaining steam in 1997, and radio stations dug it. But Mustard Plug didn't want to be known as some ska band that covered that one rock hit, so they let the moment pass and are remembered as a 90s indie ska band. The group, which formed in 1991, they just turned 30 by the way, were early purveyors of the punky third wave sound, but they also continued to push the genre in the 2000s with the Ska's Dead tour, started by lead singer Dave Kirchgesner, and they released some excellent records well after the 90s. Today we talk to Dave and guitarist Colin Clive to discuss the band's legacy, which isn't completely written yet, as they remain active 30 years in. I had never played with Mustard Plug until Omnigon. Oh yeah? All through the years, like we talked about this later, like Mustard Plug and Link 80 never crossed paths. Oh wow. But I mean, we were on Cinema Beer Nuts together, so we're linked <laughs> there. Yeah. I always really liked that song, but I had never, you know, we'd never crossed paths until now. What show or shows did Omnigon play with Mustard Plug? We played um, the show on my 42nd birthday at uh, Bottom of the Hill. Yeah. It was right before the pandemic. It was us and Toasters and Mustard Plug. And we hit it off with Mustard Plug. And then our old band, Narboots, played with Mustard Plug. And I think that was actually one of the things in my life that made me want to play ska punk again, watching them play. I want to talk about a, one specific show that Mustard Plug played. This was in uh, 1992, and uh, it was at Club Eastbrook. Do you know which show I'm talking about? It's one of two, and I'm guessing it's, was that Weird Al Yankovic or was Green Day? Yes, we- Weird Al Yankovic. Okay, good. Because we played, we played both those shows in like like ninety two, ninety three, both at Club Eastbrook, and both were like, "How the hell do we get on this bill?" But it's awesome. But yeah, Weird Al, that was fantastic. Okay, so not a lot of people have opened for Weird Al. He doesn't have opening acts very often. So the fact that you open for Weird Al is a, is an anomaly. It's not something that very many people can say they've done. Right. How did you get on this bill? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, we had no idea that the Al didn't have opening bands, you know? We, just, <laughs> we, we didn't know. And we're like, oh, Weird Al's coming to town. That would be amazing. We love Weird Al. Let's, let's. So 
Um, somehow I knew the owner of that club. His um, name was Don Dorsheimer. And, um, you know, it's just like, it's Grand Rapids. It was like, a, you know, 1600 capacity venue, but it was like, it was locally owned. It was, and, and back then, it wasn't so much like Live Nation and AEG owning all these clubs. It was just like a dude. You know, and somehow I, I don't know how I got a hold of Don Dorsheimer, but um, I probably sent him our cassette, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe our promo photo. I said, hey, we'd really, really love to do this. Um, I think it'd be a great thing. You know, you don't have to pay us, whatever. You know, and so he's like, yeah, cool. I kind of respect your gumption. And he threw us on, you know. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a trip. I, I remember like, so we opened and the crowd was like, basically polite it wasn't like our yeah. like crowd but um they were like cool they were into it and um you know and we were backstage and i we um you know there was obviously like al's dressing room and um we were bringing a t-shirt to, to, to weird al and we're like hey man i just want to like thank you for um like let us play before you and we just want to give you a t-shirt and he was like in total like Weird Al stage mode. He's like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was so great. It was so great. Yeah. And uh, we're like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, this is probably in our first 10 shows or something like that. So, wow. So we were absolutely horrible. I mean, it, like, we're like, you think, you think of like, an oversized ska band, like, you know, out of tune, everything like, like it, it must've just been just whoever was there was just like, what the heck's going on? So, yeah. Although from for years, like maybe decades, I'd have people come up to me and say, yo, I remember seeing you open up for a weird Al and you guys were great. <laughs> yep, like random great. people, the most random people were at that show. Like totally remembered us. There is a part two to the story. Um, there is a so, part two. So we thought, you know, okay, like he was nice enough and all that. And we appreciate it, but whatever, that's that. Like probably what, 10 years later, I think maybe we were playing South by Southwest and, um, you know, with some like showcase or whatever. And uh, we get done playing the show. And we're just like, chill out, grab some beers or whatever. I was like packing up my stuff. So yeah, packed, packed at emos, like indoor stage so it's super crowded and i'm like you know you have like five minutes to get yourself off the stage so i'm packing up my stuff and this guy comes up to the front of the stage and is like hey i just wanted to say hi like you guys opened for me you know years ago and uh he didn't have his mustache or anything and i remember seeing this long-haired curly guy in the crowd and going like why is there this this guy in the in the yeah, crowd no, no hawaiian <laughs> shirt nothing you know no just you know in his civilian garb and uh so he come up and then he he actually had to kind of introduce himself to me, <laughs> you know, to, to, clar to clarify who he was. Yeah. And I was like, you know, boof, brain explodes. I'm like, this is, this is insane. I'm like, I, I'm like, I'm like, can you hang out? Is there any chance you can hang out for a minute? I, I got to get this stuff off the stage. He's like, oh yeah, I'll meet you in the courtyard. Um, so yeah, so we ended up, he, and he did, I mean, he, he hung, hung around the extra 20 minutes or whatever. And we met in the oh, courtyard and. And his, his wife was there. And I think she told someone that, you know, he, he really wanted to make an effort to come see us. Right. He actually made an effort to come see Mustard Plug. It was weird. <laughs> and he was super nice. <laughs> That's really cool to know that he's a, he was like enough of a fan to like hang out. 
Like, that's amazing. Yeah. And he's just totally like, he was in like, he wasn't Weird Al. He was just Al. You know what I mean? He's just like hanging out, super mellow dude, wearing normal clothes, and just super nice and like, yeah, just a good dude, you know? There's actually a part three, three to this story, kind of, too. Oh, let's hear part three. <laughs> if you want. Um, I know Jim and I went to a casino in northern Michigan to see Weird Al play. Um, and we, I think we went, we're trying to give him like our new album or something that was our, our aside from wanting to see him, we're like, hey, we'll bring him a record, blah, blah, blah. Didn't get to see him, but we ended up running into the bass player, like standing out, outside of like just in the casino. And um, so we went up, talked to him and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, we got to take off, blah, blah. But I have all these food vouchers um, that we're not going <laughs> to use. Do you, do you want them? And so he like gave, gave us all this like free casino food voucher stuff and was very polite and and whatnot. So not quite a an epic ending to the story, but maybe it's not the ending. Maybe this is part four. We just haven't hit it yet. Part four just hasn't happened. He's like, well, yeah. I'll, I'll just won't stop talking about mustard plug. Oh, no. <laughs> I really think we need to get, we need to start a campaign to get Weird Al to play accordion on a mustard plug album. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. I think that would be great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then yeah. you, you mentioned that the, the one show with the Eastbrook with Weird Al, but then there was another one with Green Day. Were, were the two related in any way? Like, just that I knew the... Don Dorsheimer. You know this guy, okay. Don Dorsheimer, who uh, booked a, he owned the place and booked a place. And again, I'm just like, hey man, does Green Day have a, an opening band? And and we'd really love to get on it. And he's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so we opened up for them, and it was like this weird moment where like they had started off the tour as this kind of like punk rock band playing in like, like they bought this used, used to be a bookmobile. It's like tiny little truck. And I think in what, it was like one of their uncles that was driving around. So they're sleeping in this like converted bookmobile and just like totally punk rock. Right. And, um, but between the time that the book, the, the, the tour got booked and like the show that we played, like they blew up, you know, at the top 40 hit, you know, and they were just became huge, but they were still like, What's going on with this? This is crazy. And um, again, like same backstage, we had our dressing room, they had their dressing room. And um, yeah, so so we're just kind of hanging out with them after the show. And um, they had this big spread, right? The big spread of like, you know, veggie trays and meats and cheeses and all sorts of shit. And um, we're just kind of hanging out and they're just like, we don't know how we got here. We're not used to like these veggie trays and whatnot and whatever. And um, I don't know. So hanging it back backstage and, and Trey Cool has a Sharpie in his hand. He's like, hey, man, what's up? I'm like, hey, what's going on? And he came up with the Sharpie and he like put his Sharpie on my T-shirt, right? Like he like drew on it. And I'm like, what the fuck? This is my favorite T-shirt. It's like it was a King Apparatus T-shirt, right? And I love King Apparatus. And I'm like, what? And he's actually said like, oh, they're a cool band. Then he threw on my shirt. I'm like, what? <laughs> Who does that? Right? And so like, I grabbed a Sharpie and I drew on his shirt. Like, I'm not going to go down like this. So um, and he's like, oh, okay. So then he took the veggie tray, picked it up and threw it at me. Right? This whole giant, massive, like, 
veggie tray. And just like, whatever. And then like, I don't know, I probably threw more food back at him before we knew it. Like it was like massive chaos, massive, just insane, just like food flying everywhere. Right. And everything's just crazy. And all of a sudden it's like, then he just stops and we kind of look at each other and he's like, run. <laughs> what, what it, like it's Scooby-Doo almost. So everyone just like ran like hell out of there. And like they ran into their bookmobile <laughs> and we're like hanging out with their, in their bookmobile for a few minutes with them. And like, eventually we're like, all right, we better get out of here. And um, two days later, Don Dorsheimer called me up. He's like, Dave, do you know anything about someone trashing my dressing room? And I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> nope, no idea how that happened. That was happened after we left. Because <laughs> they, had, they, had, they had put mustard in the electrical sockets, too. Oh, shit, yeah. Very and, and And right before the big, you know, bailout, they pushed over this, like, one of those kind of like stainless like uh, drink bathtub kind of things. That was what they had all their drinks in. It was full of like water from ice melting. Like they knocked that over. So it was just like this giant flood of of water like across the whole dressing room. <laughs> like, that, that was that was like the moment when I'm when they that was the moment of the big like we're gonna get out of here. What have we done? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then we went and hung out on the bus for a little while, and yeah. they, were, they were super cool and nice, yeah. and you know, came down from our escapades. So, <laughs> how, how did you feel though that that Green Day actually created an actual mustard plug? <laughs> 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 like that's really something. Yeah, exactly. We did get to open for the Boston's there, like around that time too. I think so. Yeah. So it didn't yeah. it didn't shut us out. It didn't yeah. shut you down. No. Nah. It was their it was it was their dressing room, not ours. So I think we were right. And part two to the story. <laughs> part there is a part two. Many years later, decades later, we're playing at Back to the Beach, and I'm just like, we're just hanging out, and someone's like, "Hey, Trey Cool is here," and he's like, wants to say hi. <laughs> so I go outside or our uh, we have a, a dressing, whatever room thing. And he's like, hey, man, remember me? I'm like, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> so it was all cool. You know, I'm good with Trey. He's good with me and uh, happy ending. We did not trash anything together that night. No, no Sharpie the second time. <laughs> no, no. Good, good. So those shows um, on your website, I was looking at, uh, it says that I think it said uh, you played like 34 shows in 1992. So those were mm-hmm. two of the shows that you played in 1992. <laughs> um, but it says 1991, two shows. Yeah. Do you remember those two shows in 1991? I, I think so. I, I think the first one was... One's the basement, right? Yeah, the basement. Dee's uh, birthday party. Our drummer's girlfriend or wife, I can't remember at the time, her, she had a little birthday party. In, and so we played in her basement and we knew three songs. And so I think we played them like twice or something like that <laughs> yeah well, that's right they're not listed are they listed on there i would think it's got to be on the website i know the other one it is uh the other one is the martinis uh the yes. open mic night open the mic infamous night. where we got i mean we've kind of credited this as being like like we did it and we were so bad they threw us off after three songs and like wouldn't let us play but then 
as you kind of get older, it's like kind of like that's what open mic nights are. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I'm, not, true. I'm not really sure if we yeah. just completely sucked, which probably did. But probably. we were, you know, on the cusp of a Weird Al show. So we were, like, <laughs> you know, we knew you know, we were just, destined just, for great things. Yeah. yeah. Honing our chops. You got you got thrown off of an open mic and then next day you played Weird Al open for Weird Al. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um so so this was like an open mic night. It was like a whole bunch of bands. Was it bands or was it like singer songwriters? Probably a couple bands, singer songwriters, mixed bag. Nice. Yeah. They had probably, you know, never heard ska at all. So it was, you know, like what is what is this poorly played music that's you know, <laughs> these kid these kids are doing. So yeah, let's so you guys form in nineteen ninety one. What's the what's the presence of ska in Grand Rapids? Um, at that point, is there any ska? Is there any bands? Not really. No, I mean, there really wasn't any ska. There were no ska bands. Ska bands never played. Um, there was just some people that were kind of left over from the, like the 1980s punk scene. There were friends of ours that were kind of like, like, that like ska. And, um, at the time we just, uh, I mean, we, Colin and I both really liked ska. So he's like, let's start a ska band, you know, and it'll help get the scene going and, and whatever. But yeah, Grand Rapids definitely had like zero ska scene. I mean, like Detroit had a great ska scene. Chicago had a great ska scene. So I mean, if, if you want to drive two, three hours, you can go see some great bands. But Grand Rapids itself, for whatever reason, had, had nothing. So we had to fill that gap. So what bands were you, were you playing with then? Lots of like, so this was like 91. So it was like a lot of like grunge, like local grunge bands yeah. and industrial bands. Like those were the kind of like Bands that were mainly like, like happening in Grand Rapids, they weren't really happening. There's like kind of like generic college rock bands. I mean, I'm trying to think who else, but like you know, it was '91. Man, grunge was the thing, so there was like a bunch of like kind of wannabe grunge bands. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know, whenever we travel out of town, there'd be, um, you know, great. Like I said, the ska scene in Chicago was awesome. Ska scene in Detroit was awesome. So we'd always go go to those places and, and hook up gigs. What um before you guys formed, what did you go? Did you drive several hours to see ska bands? Yeah, yeah. I, I was at Western in Kalamazoo, and Dave was at Michigan State in Lansing. Um, and I know Kalamazoo had a, a ton of. I mean, like Bim Scalabim came through constantly. Toasters came through yeah. constantly. Um, those were like the two big ones. Then like Gangster Fun was around a lot. Um. Trying to think what else. This band Bob Harvey was like a reggae band that played yeah. ska. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember them. Yeah. And there was um like there's other like so Gangster Fun was the big ska band in Detroit, but there were also like, you know, uh, exceptions. We probably started in nineteen ninety, I assume, something like that. And there was like Etch a Sketch, Pickle Brown Betty, Tom Collins the Cocktail Shakers, you know, all these little ska bands were starting to happen in all these kind of little towns and stuff. So yeah, it was kind of bubbling and we jumped in pretty quick like dave i think was responsible i mean we brought started bringing bands to grand rapids like pretty soon i think after we started yeah um like king apparatus gank and pickle Mm -hmm. let's go bowling let's go bowling yeah i mean i'm I'm, like like it's crazy because so i was booking shows like in 91 and like um a good portion of what i what i was doing was like uh, kind of like grunge adjacent, you know what I mean? Like what I thought of grunge at the time was stuff on like touch and go or um, like anything on the touch and go record label or sub pop record label or amphetamine reptile, you know, all those type of bands. 
And so I, I would do like, I did a Jesus Lizard show. I did um, Laugh Hyenas. And, um, but then I also wanted to bring in like Scott, Scott bands. So, um, you know, like I, I think I'm just looking at our, our, our awesome site and like May 4th, I brought in let's go bowling, you know, and, uh, it's 90 of 92. And so we opened up for them, but yeah, like Colin said, we were, uh, able to jump in front of these bands. Um, the, the downside of that is like, we were, we were pretty rough. And so like, I think let's go bowling or for years, probably thought that like, we're like this incredibly shitty band. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and same with like, you know, like, like Chris Murray, I'm sure for years, he's like, yeah, I remember Mustard Plug. They sucked. You know? <laughs> where, where were you booking? You Did you work at a club or did you do indie shows or what? It, it was independent stuff. I worked at two different clubs mainly where I put stuff. One was um, The Intersection, which is like kind of like a college rock bar. You know, they did a lot of like, I don't know how to describe it now, but um, just kind of college alternative bands, like the Verve Pipe and stuff. Um it, that and there's another place called the Reptile House, which was sort of like the CBGBs of Grand Rapids. It was like lots. It was really cool. It was, you know, it was small and they had like amazing bands go through. And um, it was just crazy there. I mean, this the, the amount of like bands and cool stuff and whatever. Yeah. So those are the two places I, I mainly booked at. I see. Yeah. When when you think about the Reptile House, what's what's the one show that sticks out in your mind as being the best in general or the ones we played in general in general yeah doesn't have to be one you played i mean it's crazy i mean i i'm not even sure how many what capacity there was like 200 yeah. people or something About like that 200, yeah. um i mean one of the like iconic shows is like tool played there like oh, early er, er, early on i mean they were kind of local ish but that was like because that was kind of when they were breaking and it was like well that's crazy yeah that that sold out i remember although i went to see i didn't go to see them that, that night i went and saw um, she, oh, Jack White's band, um, the cowboy band, uh, blanking out the cow, um, the cow, or no, Goober and the Peas. Goober and the Peas. <laughs> I saw Goober and the Peas were playing the same night at uh, Intersection, but that was Jack White's kind of first band before uh, White Stripes or whatever, and they were amazing. But that's another show. I, anyways, uh, I would say like Rocket from the Crypt was one of them for me, and Seaweed was another, and um, Royal Crown Review, and. Yeah, and there, Billy Goat. Yeah, and there's weird stuff yeah. like Echo and the Bunnymen singer, like his side band was played there, and like industrial bands and like you know Thrill Kill Cult type stuff, and like like it was just it was insane the bands that they got through there. Yeah, and we brought like lots of cool ska bands in there, like Skinny Pickle. We did like Hepcat, you know, and Dancehall Crashers. Cool Dancehall Crashers we played with them. Yeah, so I, I think because um, you know there was the cool thing is like we. From the beginning, pretty much, we had a good fan base, you know, and because uh, we we kind of like had lots of friends, we're really like in the scene, and I mean, we we put on a fun show um, that really, like, I, I'd say within the first year, we could we were good for a hundred people, you know, easy. So um, it made it super easy for like bands to come through because, like, even though no one had really heard of Skanking Pickle in Grand Rapids in nineteen ninety two. Like we could bring them through and they'd have a crowd, you know? Yeah. And then the next time they came through that, you know, more people will be there. Absolutely. Yeah. A 200 capacity room, like always feels so good too. Like if you pack that out, like it feels so great. Totally. Totally. Yeah. We'll be right back after this. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The name Mustard Book. I would love to hear the story behind that. Yeah. <laughs> we, we wish we had a better story. It's such we it's, don't. It's a terrible story. Let's hear it. Yeah, I want to hear a terrible story. I've always wondered because it's such a weird name. Yeah. Well, we were we when we started out, you know, it was like we didn't think the band would last for like a year even. It was just like friends getting together, and the whole premise of it was just like not take ourselves too seriously, but kind of stick out you know sure. and so we had all sorts of stupid band names on the on the on the list of things we we're considering there was like the wanker daddies was one of them <laughs> uh cookie puss cookie cookie puss was another one shrinky dinks shrinky dinks yeah so then our um we had this guy that sort of was in the band and played uh harmonica i guess <laughs> and he came in he's like guys i was making my bologna sandwich and my mustard bottle was plugged up this has to be our name, Mustard Blood. Come on. But yeah, okay. It's, it's no worse than the other things <laughs> we're considering. And like, I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the inspiration was toasters and skank and pickle and like, you mm-hmm. know, like like names to yeah. some degree. So they're just trying to make a sandwich out of all the band names. Food related <laughs> things. Yeah. Yeah. So how long was the harmonica guy in the band? I mean, and he wasn't at Weird Al, so I don't think. Yeah, I think, honestly, I think he did that first show where he played a basement and played three songs, and that's it. I think. So he came in, named the band, played one show, and out. <laughs> left. Yeah, totally. Wow. Dick. <laughs> he been stuck with the band for th- the name for 30 years. And this guy's long gone. <laughs> Yeah, totally. But compared to those other names that uh, we're, we're contenders, I I guess we made the right choice. I think so. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing that makes me feel better. So, yeah, exactly. When when did you adopt the um, the yellow blazers? Was that quick or was that that was early early on? It's probably ninety two, okay. and we had um, a friend of ours that uh, owned a vintage clothing store, and there was. Um, you know, a tuxedo shop, you know, that did like, you know, weddings, that's all, you know, and whatever. And they're like, they found all these mustard yellow, you know, they, they basically bought a bunch of stock off this tuxedo shop for the vintage clothing store. And um, they contacted us and like, guys, you have to wear these things. <laughs> so we're like, check them out. We're like, yeah, sure we do. <laughs> and the rest is history. Do you um, always wear them? What's the what's the percentage uh, through the years that you've worn those? For the first two three years, it seems like we wore them every show. How nasty did they get? 
<laughs> well, the, the brilliant thing about them is you could like wash them in a regular clothes washer. Oh yeah, that was the that was the thing to say. How often were you guys washing them? Uh, you know, not not enough, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was that was always the worst thing with having like sh- like a specific thing you had to wear yeah. for a show. Yeah, was like you know several consecutive days of like overnight drives and then not being able to like dry out your clothes yeah they got kind of gross and then having to put back on the wet the wet clothes like do you guys ever remember having to put on the suit jackets and they were still damp oh absolutely (laughs) yeah totally the smell of like 12 of them being smashed together and you try to grab a good one and yeah (laughs) oh so you they were interchangeable. No, people didn't just have. Well, I think like I kind of had mine. You put your name in one that if if it fit you really well, but there were a few like just kind of loose ones too. So yeah, and and then we kind of switched. We we uh, went through a period of different different. You know, like we kept the uniform thing going yeah. for probably like twenty years, probably, probably. Yeah, at least fifteen. I think. What, what were some of the other uniforms? Um, there was the, the bowling, bowling shirts. shirts. That was which, a good one. Uh, which were, yep. Um, which listening to the. Uh, recent podcast um i saw that animal chin was try we ruined their chances of uh of, of wearing bowling shirts because we got there first uh-huh. yeah so. and, th- and there's and theirs were black with mustard yellow writing too so. that was ours so. adam didn't you tell me today that um andy the other one of the other guys at animal chin posted his bowling shirt andy from animal chin found his in his storage unit oh, and cool. pulled it out and sent us oh nice shirt. we took ours and we played maybe it was, we used it we we went to japan and um we're involved in a bowling tournament and we had our bowling shirts we put a graphic on the back it's actually pretty cool it's called like pinhead guzzlers was our uh bowling na- bowling team name um and so they actually became legit you know bowling shirts they got used for their intended purpose wow um then we had like soccer shirts, like those like V-neck, black and yellow. Yeah, like, I, did, uh, I forgot about those. Those were kind of cool. Like sport things. Then we did like the Mexican. The Guyveras or whatever. That, yeah, yeah, those were, yeah, that was we cool. Did. Yellow Guyveras or whatever. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then we started running out of ideas. We had like just black shirt and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> T-shirt of yellow shirt. band. <laughs> black shirt with yellow tie. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah that was that was a, that was a pretty good one. Oh yeah that, you guys did that for a while too i remember that black, yeah black shirt with yellow tie but so with the suit coats there were no pants that went with them right no there weren't that's part of the problem too <laughs> so it's just suit coats and then you guys like wear like shorts <laughs> yeah you'd be like shorts. yeah like, yeah dicky shorts or whatever <laughs> yep. i mean the mustard man on the iconic mustard man logo is wearing the yellow jacket with shorts so incredible that's you know that's the that's the uniform people wore a lot more shorts in the 90s too so <laughs> yeah definitely like the the uh the jackets with uh, shorts definitely made your shoulders look extra big have any of those jackets survived yeah i have i think i have one yeah every once in a while we'll break them out for a special occasion but uh oh yeah. really yeah I mean, like maybe every ten years or something, but yeah. I figured they were mostly lost to the sands of time, or or people had like conveniently misplaced them after a show. Right. <laughs> that, the thing that would always happen, like somebody, usually a horn player, would be like, "I can't find my shirt anymore, my show shirt." Right. And then that that thing would fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We're just saving them to get buried in. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mustard plug for life. Yep. 
Have you have you ever done have you ever pulled a voodoo girl skulls and had like a friend dress in like the the mustard plug uh, outfit and then come on stage and skank? Oh, is there is there a mustard man? There's there? a mustard man. So there's like a, we have a mascot like a with a big mustard man head and he has he has the mustard yellow suit jacket and then yeah, we 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 pull that out for special occasions. I know someone who would be really oh, yeah. good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do too. <laughs> because because the person needs to be of, of larger taller stature oh. it work it work it, it works better we've had a few people use it a lot of times it's holiday shows and we're kind of scrambling we're not very good at prepping so we're like grab the first person you can find so it's like oh it's jim's wife you know and she's like five foot tall or something you know and and, and like the head's super big and like it just doesn't you you look you know the head's so big that you need somebody really tall to 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 get the impact of it. So not that Becky didn't do a fantastic job, not knocking Becky. <laughs> what is it? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll probably find out soon enough, but what does it smell like inside of the, the costume? It's super gnarly. It, yeah. It's, it's not too bad, but the, so the last holiday show, um, we're like backstage, we have it. And, um, my, my, my like, uh, 19 year old daughter or I maybe 17, but anyways, one of my daughters comes up to me like, dad, there's a band smoking pot out of the mustard man head. <laughs> so, and we were like, I'm like, huh? Who was smoking pot out of the mustard man? Head? Well, I assume it was the band Bong Mountain. You know, what, do you remember that, Colin? I think it was uh, one of the guys from Murder Party. Uh, okay. Something. Yeah. Which- Actually. So they found a new source. So I'm sure. I think your daughter wore it on stage. Too, yeah, right? I think she didn't notice until she put it on her head. Because <laughs> I, I think she was, yeah, put it on and jumped on stage. But I said, so it, it gets kind of passed yeah. around a little so bit. So I don't know if it's if it's smelling better or worse because of that, but it's uh, it's I'm sure it's pungent. <laughs> and it does need some. I mean, every year we're like, oh, we got to like the eye holes are really yeah small. Like it's super claustrophobic and not a very pleasant thing to. <laughs> I have to be you, you know, have to suffer for your art sometimes. <laughs> right, exactly. So how how long has that costume been around for? Like when was it created? That had I think it's been around, what do you think? Like at least ten years. Something like that. And it's, wow, and it's least, just paper yeah. mache. It needs it needs some, it needs some work. Did did someone make it for you? I, I actually made it. Yeah. Oh, you made it, Dave. Oh, okay. I made it, yeah, totally in my basement. Like years well, how, ago. how long did how long did it take you to make it? Um you know, it. I, I'm not sure how many hours I put into it, but it was like it did take a while. Definitely. I mean, if it, it, it's long enough that I'm like, I really should build a new one, or someone should, but um, I haven't done it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that one really, it's it is falling apart. We need to do a new one, but it's just, uh, it's it's an intense piece of work, you know. I did price out recently a mascot. Like I found like a mascot like builder website thing. And I and I wrote them, but it was like a bazillion dollars. It was really? <laughs> yeah, it was like six grand or something. I don't oh know, wow! So. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have to get a Kickstarter for that. Yeah, yeah, seriously. It just uh... I feel like we deserve a legit, real mustard man head at this Absolutely. point. Absolutely, you guys have had that had that mascot for so long. It, it deserves like a proper build out. Totally, exactly. Your first album, Ska Apocalypse. Now that was just a self released kind of deal, right? Yeah, totally. And then your second record, Big Daddy Multiverse. So this was a Moon Records release? Yeah. So we, we recorded the whole thing ourselves and put it out ourselves. And um, like Bucket uh, from Toaster's Hill and Moon Records, just like, 
you know, he really dug it and he just worked out this deal that like, okay, you can keep on pressing it yourselves and I'll like put it on the roster and um, when a distributor orders it, just ship it out to them. And then, you know, I think it was like, we'd have to pay him a dollar each, which is so it was just like, like this incredibly amazing deal. We're like, we just controlled it all ourselves and we pressed ourselves and like, but he hooked us up with like Caroline Records and who was the, the big distributor and a bunch of other ones. Oh yeah. And we just yeah. like ship it out and like get paid. And it was awesome. It was such a great deal, you know? And uh, it gave us like a lot of legitimacy and people all of a sudden, because it was on moon, they were like, made, paid attention to us. So it really did take us up like another level nationally. You know, and people were, suddenly became aware of us. I want to hear about this cover because I find this cover to be disturbing. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> I cannot look at it for very long. It really bothers me. So what what's going on in this cover? It's a head covered in mustard. <laughs> who Who is that? Yeah, is it literally mustard? Yeah, it is. That's the thing. That's literally like our, our I guess he probably played sax at the time, but it was Craig DeYoung who uh, I think played sax and then later went on to play bass. But um, at that time, he was one of the, as we used to call them, the four members of, of four hornmen of the Scapocalypse. It was like the nickname, the horn guys. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so we're like, I'm, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, let's dump a bunch of mustard on Craig's head and that'll be our album uh, cover. And uh, it was like legitimately like I, I went out and bought like these. You can buy these five gallon jars of mustard at the, at the uh, you know, the, this, this place, Gordon Food Service that like mainly deals with like masses. Of, they, they like mainly like restaurant supply store and so like i i don't know it's it's, it's silly because like you'd think you could just like reproduce that somehow way easier somehow but yeah i just i dumped the mustard on craig's head and that's what it is i think we put vaseline on True. his face yeah first. at least definitely around his eyes so yeah i remember you right the vaseline yep how was that experience for him scarring <laughs> that's <laughs> horrifying <laughs> He quit. That's that. He's out. <laughs> he never bailed. He's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> no, I think, I think he was okay. I think he bounced back, but uh, who knows? It was probably pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, must, I like mustard, but it's, it's, you know, in small doses. I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine this, this photo shoot though, like, <laughs> to get this one shot, just like, hold on, hold on. Then like, you know, it's it's not digital at the time, so it's not like you're shooting them really fast. You're like, it wasn't even in a studio. It was like in this creepy ass basement, as it should be. I think he was laying on his back, right? Yeah, he's lying on his back. It's a creepy ass basement, and then I'm like pouring five gallons of mustard on his head. Yeah. <laughs> were Were there other contenders from? I mean, the look on his face is just <laughs> terrifying <laughs> here. Right. Like, are there, are there, are there has to be shots where he's like smiling, maybe? I don't remember seeing any other picture yeah. besides that <laughs> Just one. Just that one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's it. It's the only, only one exists. There was only one picture taken. It would be amazing to see that whole role. I, I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. So, Evil Doers Beware. This is the, the album that follows Big Daddy Multiverse. Um, but it's like Big Daddy Multitude. Multi I'm sorry. Yeah. Is it Multitude? Okay. Part my first question was, is like, um, like what's going on with the four year gap? Was there, was there a reason why it took four years for that album? Um, if I recall correctly and actually historically, that's kind of on par with what we did for our entire career is usually on like a five year, uh, cycle. 
for albums. So we just started right off, right off the bat doing, you know, that four year pause. Um, but no, I'm trying to think there was a big period of, we went through a lot of band members at that time. Um, especially getting ready for that album. Cause we were touring a lot, um, doing like pretty lengthy stuff around the country, like, you know, two month long treks or it could have been longer. I don't remember, but, um, it really kind of weeded out who was willing to do it or wanted to do it versus who just thought it was a fun thing to do. Um, so I remember like, I mean, we probably went through eight different horn players, you know, between Big Daddy Multitude record and then actually recording and finishing Evildoers. Um, Cause Evildoers even, we actually, even after we recorded it, we ended up calling in, like that's where Jim came in. He ended up, he was in the exceptions and we pulled him in to kind of track a couple of songs, I think. Um, and so, yeah, there, there was a lot of intermixing of, of members right around then. Um, so I think that just led to, and the fact that we were playing a ton. So I think that's just what kind of led to the, the delay. Um, also, as far as putting it, like it was done, I think if I recall correctly, Dave will probably has a better, um, it was, it was recorded, um, but we didn't really know what to do with it. Like we wanted to do something like special. We wanted a, a, a proper label or some, something that could help us. Cause we, we, we kind of, you know, saw the buzz growing and we're like, you know, we want to get it out there and let people hear it sort of thing. So, yeah, what happens then, um, so we record it with like, like Bill, Bill and Stefan. And then, um, we, uh, didn't really have a label and, uh, we were kind of talking to the descendants, uh, manager about like finance a label and working with him, that sort of thing. And he, he didn't really come up with anything. And we're, we're, um, playing this show at the whiskey, open up the descendants, um, they were they were doing six nights of the whiskey, and um, I you know I, I found out that this this manager that was supposed to hook us up with like different options hadn't invited anyone to the show at all to come see us. So I ended up calling like three different labels. It was like Nitro and Hopeless, and I think Doctor Strange, you know, and um, like Hopeless came out, Nitro came out, I think, and um, anyways, we just kind of bonded with the Hopeless Records guys. And um, so they were putting it out, but like Hopeless was always about like really meticulous about like, okay, we have to like get the artwork done on this date and then we'll send the artwork to the distributors on that date. And then the distributors will like do it. So like, it was really frustrating because we had the whole thing in the can ready to go. And they're like, well, there isn't a slot in the distributors release list for eight months or something stupid like that. And so it took a long time to get out. It was really frustrating, but eventually it did come out. Hopeless. Uh, I'm trying to think. What are some of the other records that were on Hopeless? Like other other artists at that time. Um, there, I mean, there were, I'm trying to think who was there. I mean, it was like uh, the Nobodies, Fallen Sickness, Digger. Digger. Yeah. So like before us, like there was kind of bands, but they hadn't really broken a band at that time. Like they had, like I don't think anyone had sold more than like what, five, ten thousand copies of anything or whatever, and. Um, so we um, we were kind of the first band to really break out nationally. Oh wow! Um, but the, but then after that, they had like uh, they, they were able to sign like kind of like <laughs> I don't know better bands and they got more successful or whatever. But um, you know, I'm trying to think like there's the next wave was like you know Against All Authority, um, the Queers. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, Weaker Than Sam I Am. So they had, like during like the kind of like the 
the late nineties, they, they really, that was, it was a really cool punk label in the, the late nineties. I want to just take a step back and we'll come back to this. So where, where was the point where the band became serious, if you will, like, uh, was it with Big Daddy uh, Multitude? Uh, was it before that or right after that? Well, when, when did you guys kind of make the decision to put like serious energy into the band? I think we we're always about like taking it to the next step. And the next step may have been like, instead of open mic night, let's play actual club. And instead of opening for a band, let's headline, a, you know, headline our own show. And then when, when Moon Records released Big Day Multitude, it allowed us to tour nationally. Like we could actually like play, you know, nationally and tour. And it was a very punk rock tour. We like, you know, $5 a day per DMs all crammed into a van, you know, making like 150 bucks a night or whatever it was, but we could do it. So that was like kind of the next step. And um, I don't know, I think midway in, in between like what 93 and whatever it was, I think 95 or something like that, it just kept on growing. You know, I'm, I'm I'm trying to think, but like we started, I don't know. I, I want to say like it was, I, yeah, what do you think? Like 94, 95, we started really like, like touring and, and doing stuff. Yeah. Yep. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. And so the song You on um, Evildoers, this was, um, this was, you, you were, maybe thought this could be the single. I know you guys shot a video for it and everything. Can we talk a little bit about, about shooting that video? You shot that at the Showcase Theater in Corona? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we didn't, we wanted to do a video. We thought that was like the single if there was one, you know? And um, we didn't really have anyone locally that we could, you know, work with. So we're uh, out on the West Coast and, you know, we've like hopeless new people. So they hooked us up with somebody. And, you know, we had a really limited budget. And we didn't have like too many great ideas, but, um, you know, so we we're like driving out on tour and we had a day off to do it or something. And so we came with the idea of like just going to like a thrift store and buying a bunch of like kid bikes and, you know, riding them around. And um, the cool thing about that, that filmmaker or whatever is that he uh, was really good about like, instead of getting a steady cam, like putting the camera on his shoulder and like riding a skateboard. <laughs> so, nice. so that's how it was shot and you know we like it, it's la and you know we're supposed to have all these like permits and shit like that and we just did it gorilla style where we're like all right guys we're like we're all huddled in the van and be like okay we're gonna go and we go to like point a to point b and you're gonna you know like ride your little stupid bikes past like man's chinese theater and then we go down the, this hollywood walk of fame and then quick jump in the van before the police come so it was like that like super quick and uh, yeah, just we, we so interspersed that with like the uh, the shots of that that was it Showplace Theater or Showcase Theater, whatever it was. Showcase, yeah, yeah, in Corona. Yep, and uh, yeah, that was kind of it. And that was just a regular a regular old show. Like, not did you guys run the song multiple times or just? I think we did it twice, if I remember right. 
Yeah, I think yeah. So. so I think we're like, oh, like, guys, we're gonna shoot a video, so we're gonna we're gonna play you like once at the beginning of the set and once at the end of the set or something like that. I think. <laughs> nice. And and then I mean, I remember the crowd. The crowd at the showcase always kind of went pretty bonkers, especially because of the layout of that club was really weird. Like there was like kind of a sunk down like dance floor area and then a railing and then a, and then an upper area where people could stand. Yeah. And then the merch was up on like a catwalk along like the, the like far like left wall. Like sta- if you're standing on stage looking out and, and so I'd seen people crap like stage dive off that railing from the upper section into the, into the bottom section. Right. So, yeah. So like the, the live footage in that video is great. Cause I feel like it really captures how the showcase felt. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. And some little pop-up video trivia in that video, the, the scooter that's in there with the guy riding it is the mustard on his face guy. Also. Yeah, correct. Um, that scooter. Yeah. That scooter is the, uh, the same scooter from the no effects Bob video. Nice. Um, so that's kind of a little tie into historical, uh, punk rock memorabilia or whatnot somebody has that scooter still it's worth some money do you remember that what the budget on that video was yeah shit i mean it was not much i mean like under five grand for sure um yeah i mean not much hearing that now like five thousand dollars seems like so much it does now that's the weird thing like but back then it's like you know technology is so cheap right now but back then you kind of had to have someone who was like a real filmmaker who had real gear you know what I mean? And it was super expensive. So I want to say it was like, I want to say it was like 2,500. But, um, and that was cheap because I remember the next one we did w- was for um, Everything Girl, the next record. I think we spent 10 grand on that one. Wow. Yeah. But it's, but it's 3D. Is it 3D? You guys made a 3D? It video? is. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. With the gla- glasses and everything. Yeah. But I mean, spending like five, 10 grand, that was back then, that was nothing, you know? Now it's like, definitely. Now it's like 500 bucks, you know, because everything's so cheap. But... <laughs> you shoot the whole dang thing on your phone. Right. Totally. The U video was on Cinema Beer Nuts. I don't know about for you guys, but for Link 80, like having a video on the Cinema Beer Nuts compilation ended up being a, a bigger deal than I think we thought it was going to be. How did, how did y'all feel about that? Yeah, I mean, those. I mean, people will forget how important like comps were back then. Whether it's uh, like a regular compilation CD or, or video compilation, but you know, all, all the you know underground like punk stuff did not get played anywhere. Like MTV was busy playing grunge or alternative stuff, so legit like punk and ska stuff almost never got played on MTV. So and there was no like YouTube or internet or whatever. So I mean, those things got watched and passed around, and every time like. So when you're hanging out someone's house drinking beer, someone throws in one of those videos. So, yeah, I mean, they had like an amazing reach beyond um, what you'd expect. And I think Hopeless realized that really quick and kept like cranking them out for a while there too. Yeah. The thing that really blew me away about that one was, I mean, I can't remember everybody that was on it, but I remember Mustard Plug was on it, Link 80 was on it, and then like Strife was on it. Yeah. And and it was like a really great looking video. Yeah. And then uh and then AFI had a video on it also. Right. It just it made I don't know, it felt like it 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 helped to elevate the bands it, like in the in the perception at least of of you know people buying the, this video cuz you know some of these videos were so good. Right, yeah, it was cool. I and mean, you couldn't really see them anywhere else either. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's to the point now where like, you know, I'll, you know, I've, I've been standing next to somebody, uh, shout out to my friend, John, John Wong, uh, standing next to him. And while, when you guys play you and he'll, he'll just lean over and just go cinema beer nuts. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Awesome. Who is you in the song? Um, actually that's an interesting song because, um, Dave and I, I think that might've been the first time that we shared vocal parts in, in a song. Yeah. And lyric writing too, you know? Yeah. And lyric writing. So like I wrote the verses and sang the verses and Dave wrote the choruses and sang the choruses. So like, and they were completely kind of separated and mashed together, um, so, but I mean, in in general, the the you from my perspective is your classic uh, relationship gone sour, mm-hmm. you know, sort of sort of thing. I'm not gonna divulge. You don't <laughs> throw that person under the bus, okay? Nah. What about for you, Dave? <laughs> yeah, I mean, same thing. I think uh, also, you know, um, a different relationship, but <laughs> yeah, well, not, not the same person for not, both. Not of you. the same person now, but okay, still, great, you know, so they're all had. It's a person match. Yep, <laughs> it's amazing. It's a Frankenstein. Yeah, totally. <laughs> In my book, we talked about the freshman, the song you covered. So let's 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 review that story really quick, because then I want to kind of understand its context to the rest of this album. So so tell people you you guys covered freshman and and, and tell um, by the verb the verb right. Oh, the verb, verb, the verb pipe, yeah. pipe, yeah. The verb pipe, sorry. Mixing up my alternative bands. So yeah, go ahead and tell the story. Well, basically there was like an alternative radio station in town in Grand Rapids that um, was putting together a compilation CD of, um, you know, different local bands. And uh, they hit us up and we're like, we're a little bit lukewarm about the station because, you know, they never really played our music to begin with. So like, um, but this band, the verb pipe, were local had this huge top 40 radio song and they they played just that song that was like a sacred cow to them it was just like like huge song it was huge nationwide but it was especially huge because they were local and so like let's let's do a punk ska version of the freshmen and see how they like that (laughs) 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 and so we weren't sure if they were going to be like we were because we were messing with their sacred cow if they'd be offended by it or what we're like let's just do it. And, you know, recorded the song and honestly, the song's a great song. It's great songwriting and that sort of thing. And and I think, you know, we tried to, you know, we didn't just like, it wasn't just merely a piss take. It was like, we did our, our best to like put it in our own like style and that sort of thing. We were pretty happy with it, but, um, but they, it turns out they loved it and um, the band heard it, the band loved it. And uh, oh wow, yeah. And so we, we came with the idea of like, okay, so, um, let's re-release it as a, a, a single, like a radio single that we'll send out to radio stations. And we'll put that. And um, I think we had a radio edit of you because uh, that's the song we really wanted you know, them to pick up on. That was our dream. So we sent it out to like college ra- or different like, commercial radio stations, Hopeless did. And it started getting picked up. I got a lot of play in like Phoenix, I think a little bit on K-Rock, stuff like that. Um, but, but yeah, they never picked up you. And we debated like re-releasing Evildoers with with uh, the freshman on it. We're like, nah, let's not do it. We didn't. We decided just to like let it kind of die on the vine because we realized that they weren't going to pick up you, and we didn't. We didn't really want to be known as like a that band that plays that other band song for the rest of our lives type of thing. So we just kind of let it die. So it's really brilliant that because it's a song that was like one year old or something like that, right? Yeah. And just like you didn't really see much of that 
people covering songs that were a year old. Right. Yeah, it was pretty fresh still. Um, and I and I think you guys did a good take. I like your version better. I like that it has that sort of anthemic, like you know, ska sound to it. I think it's a, it's an improve. I I would call it an improvement personally. Yeah, there was also like during that time they were like they kept re-releasing new versions of that song. Um, I mean, there was probably four or five kind of very slightly different, you know, really? different drum beat. Yeah, they kept remixing else. it for like to make it more commercial or whatever. I mean, because it was originally on like whether self-released records that like had it was it was a, a local hit. Right. And then when they got signed, I think it was RCA or whatever. Then they did an album version and then that wasn't quite right. And so they re remixed it again to make it even more commercial, whatever. Uh, friendly and uh, so it was I mean if you're like, nationwide if you were in like LA you would never know there was more than one version of the freshman but if you were in West Michigan where they start playing it in bars and it caught on locally like there were like what, at least three maybe four versions of it something like that and so we're like here's one more <laughs> yeah and then the Scott Punk version so when when in the um, Evil Doers release cycle did you first record that uh, you know the freshman for the radio station was evildoers already out at that point yeah it was it was already out um it was still pretty fresh if i remember right and still kind of building but um so we had to make that decision do like we re-release the record with this song on it or not and um yeah i mean part of it was like well then we have to start we have to give like one tenth of our royalties to the to the verb pipe and it's gonna be a pain oh, in the ass yeah. and all these other things you know that we're just, we debated we thought about it but um just yeah decided not to do it you, your label must have wanted you to do it, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they did. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's hopeless. I mean, it, I don't think it's a secret anymore, but it, it, I think it secretly wanted to become more than a, a, a punk rock record label. They uh, really wanted to, like, I mean, and more and more as, as they evolved, became more of like more of a uh, commercial mainstream type of a label, the way they, they function or whatever. And they were always, I think, wanted to get way bigger than, than a LA punk label. But so, but I mean, to their credit, they didn't like pressure us too hard. They didn't like, they weren't yelling at us or anything, but I think they were a little sad that we didn't, you know, <laughs> add it to the record or whatever. So it, it seemed like there was some real potential if it was pushed. Cause I mean, it was, it was sort of just in that early beginning building stages. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, and then with some serious push, it kind of really maybe hit all the radio markets or whatever. And it was weird. Like we were getting like, You'd hear like, you know, they were, that was when the battle of the songs were, was like a big thing on like radio. So it'd be like, must have plugged the freshman up against, you know, <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins, whatever, you know, it's like, and that, that, that was legitimately happening, like not constantly, but every so often. And we'd kind of hear that and it was like, that's weird. Like, yeah, but yeah. So, I mean, it, it did have, I think it probably had even right. more potential than we thought yeah. I mean, at the time. Hindsight, I don't know if we made the right decision or not, but it is what it is, you know? So I want to skip forward to the uh, Ska's Dead tour. So this is like 2003? Was that when I it think is? 2004, maybe. But, okay, 2004. Uh, I could um, be wrong. Okay, so Dave, this was your idea? Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, you know, it was at the time, like, like around 2000, there was obviously a huge ska backlash, right? And um, it became much harder to be a ska band. And it was kind of bullshit because like there were still like lots of ska fans and most of the ska bands were, were still going. And um, 
it was just so underground and we were having a really hard time. It was getting harder and harder to like book tours, book shows. And so the whole concept of the tour was like, okay, let's, um, let's kind of band together with some of our friends and, um, and take it out and prove that people come to these shows, you know, we'll like band together and, and prove to these promoters and whoever, everyone that's dissing Scott right now. And so, um, I mean, the first idea was like, it was talking to like the planet smashers. Like we were always super tight with the smashers and I was you know super tight with Matt just talking to him about it. And, you know, we we're, were good friends with big D and their big D was a much smaller band at the time. They were kind of like the little up and coming band. But, um, so we're like, okay, let's do it. Um, and we're trying to think of names and, and, and Matt Smasher actually came up with a name, like, let's call it Scott's dead and you're next. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But it, it's, it's kind of long though. <laughs> so, um, I went with Scott's dad cause I thought it was, I think it's pretty funny. And, um, yeah, when, uh, catch 22, um, I think it was booking big D at the time. So we ended up like bringing them on board. So it was like the, the those four bands, and we, we took it out first. It was just like, I think, a Canadian and East Coast lag and then added like some, a couple other legs. It was really, really successful. Um, and so I was able to like uh, do it, I think, like three or four more times um, through like, you know, 2008 or whatever. Um, and I, my goal is that we wouldn't do every one. It would be like an annual thing. Um, I can't remember. I think the next one was like with Streetlight Manifesto right when they were breaking and it was Streetlight Manifesto, Voodoo Glow Skulls, and ME330 were the three headliners. And uh, that was interesting. I didn't go out on that, but um, that, was, that was really cool. Um, I'm trying to remember, like, who else. There was one we did with um, Toasters, Us. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, go, Jimmy, go. Um, yeah. It, it, like, I think I did four of them total. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they were really great. The, the problem was, is that, like... During that time, you know, by the time like 2008 or whatever, towards the end of it, um, I just ran out of bands, you know, because like <laughs> bands were breaking up. They were like, you know, or they'd stop touring. So, I mean, I was I had been talking to the Suicide Machines about um, headlining the next one and then they broke up. And that just kind of that, that bummed me out because I was like, I was all set, you know, and um, even some of the, the, the smaller bands that was trying to like, you know, um, build up to like become headliners they would break up like go jimmy go broke up um like deals gone bad we're starting to make it but never really got to that point where they could really headline something that big um westbound train uh like they they kind of went on hiatus before they really whatever and then there were a bunch of bands that like you know like i, I was hoping you know like like against all authority they, they broke up there pie chasers really stopped touring so all these there were all these bands that just like you know, in the mid two thousands were like fallen by the wayside and just got to the point. Well, either I can do this every year with the same three bands uh, or, you know, I have to like, just stop doing it. And like streetlight manifesto was another one. They did the, that, that one tour, but then they stopped wanting to do like Scott tours and got too big for it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to catch 22 broke up, you know? So it was just brutal. Like that. It was just like, cause there were, there was a demand for it, but I just couldn't find bands. It was kind of, it was, uh, so I, I, I thought it was a great thing that it did kind of catalyze the Scott scene a little bit, which was the goal, but then it wasn't enough to like keep these bands going, you know? It's, that's so interesting. Like, um, I think the, the really interesting thing about this tour isn't the, the perception of the public on Scott. It's the, 
It's that the promoters, the club owners, they somehow are get a false sense of Ska's place. Like, yeah, like they go like, oh, no one likes this music anymore. Like they're not they're not in tune with the fact that there's still an audience. Right. Oh, and, totally. And then then so they're not willing to book bands, even though the audience will come. Right. Yeah, that was totally the case in the mid 2000s. Yeah, it was really frustrating, you know. I've talked to um, Dave Hilliard about from the Slackers. He told me because he was he booked them for a number of years. He just booked them himself, and uh, yeah, he was like he ran up up against that as well. Like he would call clubs, and clubs would be like, well, "We don't want to, you know, no one's going to come to see you." And he's like, "We have an audience. What are you talking about?" Yeah, 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 totally. And a lot of it was, um, you know, I don't know whose fault it was, but like it, when Ska was like at its zenith. And um, sort of the tail end of that, like 99, 2000, there were still all these clubs that would book like whatever, no name ska band that no one cares about that, you know, whatever. And we'll book them and give them a guarantee. And then it tanks and they can't and they think all ska's that way, you know? Yeah. Um, Where they didn't really understand what was going on. I mean, there's it's like any other genre, you know, there's like kids aren't going to come out you know, past like maybe they, maybe in 1997, they'd come out to anything that was, you put Ska on, but by 2000, they're like, okay, yeah, we'll see the slackers. We want to see the mustard plug, like, like bands that have actually built something up, but like your average Ska band that no one, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's, there's going to be a draw, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and, and they didn't, I don't know why they didn't figure that out, <laughs> but a lot of people, I mean, stores didn't figure that out. I mean, that's, that's why there was, a big part of like I worked at a record store and I, you know, you'd see like other record stores that would just bring in anything with like moon records. So it was Scott. And then they'd end up having to return half of it. And um, I mean, that's part of what like killed a lot of those labels and distributors and stuff. Yeah. It's weird. A lot of these people don't understand Scott. Like every other genre has acts right. that people care about and acts people don't care about. It's not like this uniform thing where it's like, absolutely. It's yeah. so bizarre. It's like this, this, this is true for hip hop. This is true for rock and roll. It's true for punk rock. Right. So bizarre. Yeah, totally. It is. Yeah, totally. We'll be right back after this. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024 these are GA plus and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So you guys um in 2007, I think, you guys released In Black and White. Yeah. I would love to talk about this because I think this is one of my favorite records by you guys. And I know, as I understand it, this was like you guys approached us with a bit more seriousness maybe than your previous records. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about, I want to hear the, a little bit of the backstory behind it and then some of the what, what, you know, what you felt you wanted to put on this record. Yeah. Um, so, so the previous record, Yellow Number 5, came out and it's kind of like at that that point in ska that was like just really depressing to be a ska band it was really hard we'd gone through some lineup changes and um we recorded locally like in detroit and we decided you know like we want to put a record but we want to put a lot of ton of money in it and um 
so it, it turned out okay, but it was, you know, kind of disappointing to like, I think everyone, um, you know, our fans and ourselves and just, it didn't live up to the two records we'd put out beforehand. And, you know, it's kind of like, you kind of get what you pay for a little bit when it comes to recording or whatever. Um, but, you know, during probably 2006, we had, um, you know, we got a new rhythm section and they really clicked. It was like the first time in a long time that our rhythm section really, really clicked well and kind of brought us up to a new level and, and really to me injected a lot of energy into the band. And as a result, I think, um, our songwriting improved and, um, there was the whole Scott's dead tour at that time, which was getting in front of, get us in front of like big crowds again. And so there was a lot more energy. So we wanted to like, you know, and we, we felt better about our, our songwriting and, uh, so yeah, we we went and recorded at the at the blasting room with, with uh, Bill St- Stevenson, who had done our, our two other records, and really just put a, a ton of energy and and money and everything into that record. Was there um, was there stuff happening in the in the world in politics that inspired you to want to write something more political? Well, yeah, I mean, there was like you know the, the whole um, build up to the Gulf War that influenced like the lyrics to some of the songs um, like time to wake up is, is really about that, that build up when, um, you know, George Bush was like going to invade Iraq and he was sort of like pretending that maybe he won't, you know, or whatever. And you could just tell that like, that was, it was going to happen. And I, I kind of had some re- recurring nightmares where it's like, you kind of, we, I had this weird recurring nightmare where like, I, someone was attacking me. I ended up like attacking them back or something like that. And you end up like trying to shoot them, but your gun like ends up out of bullets and you realize that there's, there's no turning back. Like this is a, a fight to the death type of thing. Like it's, it's weird recurring nightmare that I also had, but, um, and, and that's kind of the feeling behind that, that song. It's just like, you know, there's no turning back, you know, this isn't going to end up well, you know, there's going to be death, you know? And, um, so that's what that song was about. And, you know, not every song is serious, but I know that's like probably one of the most political songs I've ever written. And it's not like, um, I don't know, some people probably don't realize even what it's about, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's strange. Cause like from a band perspective, I, I felt really optimistic about how the band was going, but from a worldview perspective, you know, it, it was kind of a, a really not, not a great time. You know, there's a lot of bad things happening at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about the song "Who Benefits." That's the opening track, right? Um, yeah, you know, it's it, that's one of those songs. It, it's kind of weird. That one was um, kind of about like gentrification and urban renewal and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, it's it's a little vague, but I mean, that's kind of like the, those two concepts are, um, you know, uh, behind it in a vague sort of way. It's kind of just all about like thinking about spaces and, and who owns them and how it affects the, the bigger community, that sort of thing. Tell me one more song that you feel like, like that would be interesting to discuss lyrically from that record. I don't know. What's, what's on and on about Colin. That's like, on and on, I'll say one thing about on and on, which is a trip. This has nothing to do about it. But um, that song, it's like, we didn't realize that that was a hit until like Spotify happened. And then we just noticed that like people are listening to that song a lot like that. And we never did a video for it. Nothing. I, I like there's, I don't think there's any song that I can think of that we didn't realize was such a hit. And yet had this just organically people love that song. And it was really fascinating. Just watch something so organic, like rise to the top of like our, our, our plays. That's that one's at the top of your plays. 
It's up there, man. It's like in the top five consistently. Yeah. Yeah, I thought for sure you guys had released that one as a single. Yeah. It's so catchy. Yeah. I don't know why we didn't realize it at the time. We should have done a video for it or whatever, but yeah. I don't, yeah, that I mean that that song originally came um it was an unused song from one of my side projects. Um so originally it was just kind of a mid-tempo pop punk song basically. Um and I thought I'd give it a give it a whirl just playing it ska or whatever. Um and it came out good. I I I mean in hindsight I wish I would have made it a little longer. <laughs> I mean it's it's a super short song. Um especially since people seem to dig it. It's like, oh, I could have, I could have, you know, stretched this out a little bit, you know, reap the rewards just a little bit longer. Got it to a little bit closer to, got it a little bit closer to three minutes. It, it's, it's probably like, it's, it's probably like just over two minutes long or something like that. So. Yeah. It's two minutes, 17 seconds. Um, does the original recording uh, of that song exist in, in it's like non ska version? Um, it probably, it probably does somewhere. I'd have to do do some digging, but but it probably does. I'd love to hear that. I mean, I I've I've done the same thing with Omnigon, where I've taken songs that were, you know, weird from other weird projects, demos that were not ska at all, and then turned them into ska. It works <laughs> really well. It does work. It do, it does work well, especially because you can take something that's a little bit maybe more morose sounding. And then you just add that ska and put some horns in there and not doesn't sound so deep, so dark. Yeah. And it was weird. Cause I, I mean, I, it was an unused other one. Like I didn't, like I, I could never really get it to work or it just, it was just one of those songs that I didn't really have a, a home for. And, and it came together relatively quickly. If I, if I recall. So it just goes to show that anything is better when you play it ska. <laughs> <laughs> so, these days, um, I feel like there is um, two bands that have really, really just embraced the, the current scene and the bad time scene and the bands. And I feel like that's Suicide Machines or Jay in general and you guys. I'm curious, like your thoughts about this current scene and your place in it and, you know, Embrace just kind of embracing these bands and embracing the scene. Yeah, I mean, I'm just excited that there's a new wave of ska bands. I mean, it, it felt like for so long that there were like no new ska bands, and it was really sad, you know. And it, it'd be tough because like we'd go out on tour and we want to bring like a, a ska band with us, but there wasn't anyone that really like drew or whatever. There weren't like many new ska bands for a while. It seemed like. Um, so so now that there is it's awesome you know i mean it's like that's what's good i mean i i think colin and i like have this really sincere love of ska and we always have and um so and, and we kind of approached the band always you know as fans it wasn't like i'm i'm not i'm sure there's other bands out there that just like are kind of using ska as a tool to like get from point a to point b but like we've always approached us as you know, Scott as fans. Like, you know, we always loved it, you know, before we were in a band. And um, so, you know, in order to keep, keep Scott moving, we need new bands and finally we have them. So it's exciting. And we, you know, it, it's cool. We love these bands that are coming up and it's, it's, it's just great to be. Um, I mean, I think it's always great to play with like new bands too, because they like, 
inject new life into the show. They bring new people. It's just like new people to hang out with too, you know? So we're stoked. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here's the secret though. I got a secret to tell you. These new bands, All right. they're not that new. <laughs> <laughs> I got I, I'm breaking it now but True. it's so funny like we are the union I'm looking at our site first played with them in 2007 you know I mean Adam you've you've been at this for a little bit too and even like Kill Lincoln they've been around for a while I mean Cat, Cat Bite's definitely new but like you know he's been in the snails before Tim has so um I don't know I hate to break it to you guys but it's almost like the thing with ska and some of it's just the the the, the perception of it is like if you weren't part of the nineties at all, then you're kind of new, even though it's been 20 plus years since that period. And also I think because like they're with, with the, the presence of bad time records and sort of the way that the bands are gaining steam now, I think it, it's part of, that's part of it too. It's like a package, like a, a um, it's a good, I mean, Hey, I don't want to be sound crass or whatever, but it's a good, marketing pitch you know what i mean it's like something exciting something for you know because otherwise like you look at um brooklyn vegan like like it's writing uh, something about like 90s bands or bands around for 20 years it's like what do you say mustard blood they're still playing the same stuff you know what i mean there's not a really good angle (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh this is great mustard plug still playing again you know So, I mean, it's cool. It's like, and it it does give someone like a new angle on it and it gives energy and excitement. And, you know, it's like, you know, we're all, we're all ships on the same sea. So, uh, um, you know, what's, what's good for one ska band absolutely is is good for another. I'm just, I'm excited about the whole thing. And, and, you know, like I said, we've been lucky that we're like buddies with like a lot of the bands and we just played, um, you know, obviously just just played the fast at the bad time plus mustard plug record showcase <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'm saying you guys jump right in there <laughs> yep hell yeah and uh but it's great i mean we're buddies with, with the bands and it's just it's just effortless and fun you know i'm curious so right before the pandemic like maybe what one or two months that's when you guys played sacramento um, yeah, and I was there, and then the night before you played in um, San Francisco, and Adam's band opened. Um, I remember talking to you at that show, and I because I remember being like, just kind of amazed at how packed like the show was. I don't know if it was sold out, but it sure felt like it was sold out. And it was like a Tuesday or Monday or something. Yeah, and that I remember, yeah, I remember, I mean, you and I talking. We're like, wow, I can't. This is crazy. Like, what's going on? Was that sort of a moment where it seemed like there was more? interest in ska or did you see that happening like a year or two before that you know it's it's been building for a little bit maybe like prior to that like a year or so i mean back to the beach that that concert was another kind of watershed moment of looking around and like oh my god there's whatever five thousand people here or whatever and like what this is crazy you know that was one but that last tour that we do with the toasters and yeah like like of all shows sacramento on a tuesday night and it's packed and like on a tuesday like san francisco it was like a tuesday or monday or tuesday wednesday and we're like just like what is going on i mean i know this is building i know this is happening but there's no denying it now you know it's something that's really happening and it's yeah it's just amazing something that surprised me is that it seemed like an energy grew in the pandemic when there was no shows 
which seems so counterintuitive to ska and what sort of gets people gets people into ska is the you know the live show and yeah. the and the promise of live shows and it seems like in, in the in the in with no live shows people are just kind of getting more and more interested in ska it's just it's totally mind blowing to me it is yeah i i think it's cuz like it is such positive music and like i mean the whole pandemic has been a huge bummer obviously and uh I mean, it's it's part of the reason for me personally is like to see like Scott finally getting that energy ahead of the 90s, only to have it like crushed by the pandemic was was pretty rough. Um, so I but I think people really need that that kind of positive energy. And, and I think the other part of it is that like a lot of the new bands um, are really adept at, at, at social media. I mean, way more than like Mustard Blog or the Toasters or someone like that, you know, um, you know, like they just churning stuff out and having this huge like presence on social media that, that made it relatable for people that are sitting in their living rooms, you know, every day, that sort of thing. Yeah. Colin, I want to ask you really quick, since both you and I really like, uh, industrial music, mm-hmm. um, 2016, you played with, you played with Atari teenage riot. How was that? <laughs> um, I mean, that's a, it's some of these are a little bit of a stretch. Um, was it like a festival type situation? Yeah. Did you get to see him? Yeah, I did. It was phenomenal. It was so fun. Um, <laughs> I had never seen him before. That was at, um, I believe, uh, that thing in Canada. The yeah, um, uh, shoot, yeah, Montebello, Mont- Montebello yeah, Rock Fest or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's a little bit of a stretch saying that we played with them. <laughs> Still, though, I mean, getting getting to just, I mean, getting to see bands like that, like that are so, I mean, a band like Atari Teenage Riot that's so outside the realm of like what a ska band would play with. So exciting, so fun. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, completely unrelated but related. Um, just a funny, uh, story of us playing with weird people, but um we played this scooter rally in Seattle way back forever. And somehow clutch ended up on the bill, um, with a bunch of ska bands. So, <laughs> so that, that, that one always cracks me up. I like, I, I like clutch a lot actually. And it was just so, yeah. I, and, but I don't even know if I was that familiar with them then. I mean, it was pretty early on. How, how did the uh, crowd react to clutch? Yeah. I don't remember like anything, like they weren't like throwing stuff at him or anything like that, you know? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're probably a little scary too. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember anything necessarily bad, but they probably just sat outside on their scooters or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Most of them probably sat on their scooters for us too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Scott. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you normally download podcasts. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's at In Defense of Ska. You can also sign up for my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get the podcast sent directly to your inbox every Wednesday. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has a great band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, 
has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.